This episode of The Green Rush is sponsored by our friends over at Covis Software, the number one dispensary point of sale system in North America. There are lots of reasons why Covis Software is the number one dispensary point of sale system in North America, but maybe none so important as its rock solid reliability with a 99.9999% uptime. That's six nines. And when it comes to performing over the all important 420 holiday, Cova has zero crashes, 100% uptime and an average processing time of just 1.4 seconds each and every year. Think about your own dispensary's point of sales program and how that stacks up. And I think you can start to get a sense of why Kova software is proving to be so popular. Then add in all the other benefits that being a Kova software client brings, and it starts to feel like one of those no-brainer questions. Do you need automatic compliance? Kova has that. Offline mode? Kova has that. White glove launch service? Kova has that too. In addition to open APIs, scalability, fast and free software, support and best in class partner ecosystems. Don't delay today and don't just take my word for it. Open up kovasoftware.com and learn how Kova can make your business better. That's kovasoftware.com with Kova spelled C-O-V-A. Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and sometimes psychedelics industry forward. This week, our hosts are chatting with Amanda Siebert, a freelance journalist covering the psychedelics and cannabis space and the author of The Little Book of Cannabis, How Marijuana Can Improve Your Life. Amanda is a co-founder and editor-in-chief at Inside the Jar, a growing independent publication focused on drug culture in Canada and the United States, and recently was announced as the new editor of the revamped CannabisHealth.com. Based in Canada, Amanda is one of the leading journalists covering both the cannabis and psychedelic space with her byline regularly appearing in Forbes and having been featured in the New York Times, Vice, Leafly, the Calgary Herald, and Georgia Strait. We sat down to talk with her about the latest headlines of both industries, including drug decriminalization legislation, how much of the investor excitement permeating throughout the industries is real and what's hype, as well as her follow-up book, The Little Book of Psychedelics, which is due out later this year. So don't sit back, lean forward. Now on to our conversation with journalist Amanda Siebert. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. Um, before we jump in, how are you doing? How are you handling quarantine? How's the work been? What have what have you adjusted to? All that fun stuff. Well, thank you both for having me on. Um, how's life? I guess I mean it's all right. I'm, <laughs> I'm sort of adjusted to this whole, you know, constantly being on my own thing, and I've sort of filled my time with lots of work. <laughs> uh, it wasn't like that at all at the beginning, or at the beginning, I was kind of uh, a little bit slower around projects, but now I've just sort of picked up a lot of things, and yeah, waiting to uh, plan my next vacation, as I'm sure <laughs> we all are. And where are you calling us from? I'm in Vancouver, BC. 
Okay, so it's cold up there. <laughs> not as cold as the rest of Canada. Like I know it's like minus twenty or minus thirty. You know, <sighs> yeah. The country here, it's like five degrees. It's not so bad. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, nice yeah. and warm. Balmy. <laughs> So we are sure our listeners are um, are familiar with your work um, because you are literally everywhere. It's Forbes and Vice and Leafly. Um, but can you provide um, our listeners some of your background of how you came to one reporting, um, two authoring, <laughs> uh, and three psychedelics and cannabis? Sure. Um, so how did I come to reporting? I guess um, when I finished journalism school, I applied for a practicum at a local uh, paper here in Vancouver called the Georgia Strait. It's a, an alternative weekly that's been around for 50 plus years. And I went in like, <clears throat> I'm going to land a job here. Um, and at the end of my practicum, I basically wrote a letter like begging for a job and it worked. <laughs> okay. So I worked nice. there a little bit and that, that was where I got my sort of start in cannabis. Um, I was sort of a generalist there writing about all sorts of things. And then um, I just sort of started dabbling in it. I mean, it was something that I'm personally interested in and consume all the time. So um, I, I guess that kind of became the focus. And then I was started out there as the cannabis editor um, in 2017. And since then, it's just been kind of a whirlwind. Uh, Now I'm freelancing, but um, I contribute to a bunch of different publications like Forbes, um, the Dales Report, I used to write for uh, Leafly, a couple of others. So um, yeah, it's been really crazy to be sort of like, watching all of this happen and and getting to write about it and you know meeting the people that are involved in a lot of the things that are happening um yeah it's it's been a wild couple of years <laughs> yeah how has the the industry changed since the the early days of 2017 yeah. which yeah. for most industries wouldn't be too much of a a difference in just a couple of years but for cannabis we know that's obviously totally totally i mean it even feels like like 2017 is like maybe the beginning of legality, I guess, or, or this idea of, of legality, at least here in Canada. Um, but yeah, it, uh, it's definitely changed a lot. I mean, the, uh, the number of uh, products and things we can access up here have changed as I'm sure they have in the United States. Uh, the acceptance towards uh, the substance, I think is the substance, the plant, I should say. Um, <laughs> Is, is huge. Uh, it's really changed a lot. I mean, there's still some some uh, areas that are, are uh, you know, people people have their, you know, built-in ideas about what cannabis, cannabis is, but uh, we see a lot of that starting to break down, which I think is really exciting. And there does seem to be, I mean, we have a, a lot of Canadian clients too, and with the, the 2.0 launch, and now people are calling it the 3.0 launch, that there's so many other form factors um, that, are, that are permeating that marketplace. Um, and it's seems to be the more different types of products that are out there, the more acceptance it brings. Um, is that something that, that you see too, as a, as a local? <laughs> for, sure, for sure. I mean, um, in Canada, we treat CBD a little bit differently. It's actually regulated the same way that like THC containing cannabis is, which is another story, but, uh, so we don't yeah. have the wide, wide, wide avail- availability of CBD as you do in the States. You can't find it at like gas station or, or whatever it's you have to go into a regulated licensed store to find it so I, I kind of wish that you know at least the the non-intoxicating um this this compound was more available hopefully that's something we see but, but yeah definitely like even um people like my parents who you know they're not consuming yet but they used to be very like oh don't even talk about it you know like, really <laughs> and, now, and here you are like guess what i'm doing mom I'm and dad kind of like well alrighty then <laughs> 
And so they've sort of become more accepting just in, in watching, um, you know, my career kind of change and, and things like that, because there's this perception that, you know, cannabis consumers are all lazy stoners that don't get shit done. <laughs> and uh, that's not me at all. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I yeah. mean, did they, did they read your book? Yeah. Cause they should have. Yeah. They have. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm holding up a copy of the little book of cannabis, how marijuana can improve your life. Um, so t- well, tell us about this book, tell us how it came about, um, and tell us about what your parents thought of it. Totally. Uh, <laughs> so how did that book come about? Uh, it came about when I was working at, um, the Georgia Strait. Uh, I worked with a local publisher sort of building an idea around, um, how can we write something that sort of encapsulates all these ideas about what cannabis can do to, uh, improve your health in a way that is sort of digestible and not dry, like reading a study or a paper. Um, so I basically picked 10 subjects that I thought were sort of across the board, like could apply to, to everyone in different ways. Um, there's a chapter on um, exercise and recovery. There's a chapter on sex. There's a chapter on sleep. But then there's also chapters on pain, um, cancer, end of life, things like that. And so what I tried to do in that book uh, was really um, just uh, take the information that was out sort of uh, in the public domain, in the body of research, and pare it down uh, into something that, you know, my parents could understand or even my grandparents, uh, just making it a sort of approachable um, subject. Because for a lot of people, it's, it's, you know, oh, cannabis, you know, like, I don't really know anything about that. It gets you high. Maybe I'll get the munchies. Like, <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, it was really fun to sort of um, take that information, speak with experts. And then I also... Sorry, this is siren. <laughs> all good, all good. Um, yeah, <laughs> all just good. all of that um, conversation that I got to have, and then taking also, you know, examples from people who were able to tell me exactly how um, cannabis improved their life in a certain way was really powerful. And I've had some great feedback. So, yeah, that's uh, it was fun, <laughs> fun thing to do. That's awesome. Um, was there any, without giving away too much of the the, the stories from the book, because obviously we're going to direct people to uh, uh, go get it from your website and, and take a read for themselves, but can you tell us like one interesting story or something that you came across in the reporting for that book that uh, surprised you totally. or, or you thought was funny? Um, well, I guess not something that surprised me, but I guess something that is less discussed about cannabis. So in the last chapter, um, I speak with a woman named Selena Wong. Um, she's a friend of mine. She lives in the Okanagan in British Columbia. And so um, she, um, near the end of her grandparents' life, she actually moved in with them and she was basically their caretaker. Uh, she's also been huge into cannabis most of her life. And when she saw that her grandmother, grandmother was starting to... Um, she had symptoms of Alzheimer's. She was starting to forget things. She wasn't always, you know, present, so to speak. Um, and so in, in struggling with that as a family, they actually found that, um, administering cannabis in small, small, small amounts. So she started with, um, you know, like a jam that had a little bit of THC in it, uh, and obviously some CBD too. And, um, she found that it found um, it brought some some liveliness to her grandmother, some some um, childlike behavior. She w- was able to have moments of lucidity, and also uh, she was able to sort of um, grasp this concept of you know life and death, and and as she was approaching the end of her life. And so, it was really a heartwarming story um, from Selena on how cannabis can help with that sort of end of life process in those sunset years. Um, something that really, really speaks to me. And I think something that we ought to talk about a lot more. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that kind of goes into, um, some of the work that's happening in the psychedelic industry as well, 
<clears throat> I mean, Michael Pollan's book certainly addressed that. Um, and you have, you are addressing psychedelics um, and have branched out into that category as well. And um, you are working on a, a book called The Little Book of Psychedelics. So can you tell us a little bit about that and when can we read it? Sure, totally. Um, so basically The Little Book of Psychedelics is going to differ from the little book of cannabis and that I'm not going to be so prescriptive. I'm not going to be telling readers like, take this much of this. And, um, and, and, and even in the little book of cannabis <laughs> that is presented in like a, here's an idea. Right. Right. Um, the little book of psychedelics is going to, it's going to have the same approach, really just trying to, um, present this information in a, in a really like approachable way for people. Um, and I'm going to be speaking with a lot. I have already spoken with a bunch of, um, um, experts in the field um, who are so, so, so generous with their knowledge. Like I'm blown away by, um, you know, the people that have been working with the substance for 20, 30, 40, 50 years are, are like on the phone with me for an hour and a bit, like, you know, because they're so concerned and so excited also about um, getting the right information out there. So I'm taking like a little bit more time on this book because it's so important. There's a lot more um, safety things that that need to be sort of weighed in. And so uh, I'm hoping to have it finished being written by about, I think my deadline is September, but I want to get it done before that. So I'm hoping that by the winter time, um, maybe late 2021, early 2022, we shall be seeing this book on the shelves. So awesome. I, <laughs> and I love, I mean, the way that you constructed the, the cannabis book, um, you know, with the, with the anecdotes and with the storytelling, I think is so important too. And, um, and I know it, like you said, it makes it more approachable. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing, you know, how you can kind of do that with the, the psychedelic space. So I guess let's stick on that for a minute. Nick, did I just jump on you? Sorry. Okay. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. Um, you know, I, how much is, you know, that like, we're kind of seeing this, this wave here of, of, you know, everyone's talking about psychedelic industries and the, and companies and stocks and all that stuff. Um, how do you see that comparing to what happened in cannabis? And I guess how much of your life is cannabis and how much of your life is psychedelics at this point? That's a great question. I try and keep it about half and half. There are weeks where like, Oh, there's like eight million things happening in psychedelics. And, I'm like, <laughs> and the next week it's like, oh, there's all this stuff happening in cannabis. Um, but I, I try and keep it, uh, keep it on an even kind of keel. Um, yeah, I mean, watching this happen has been just cool. Like I, and I'm like, like a young person. I can't imagine like someone who's been working at this, you know, quietly in the background for many years and is now like, you know, watching all of these things occur. Um, when we compare it to cannabis, and that's an, actually an interesting thing to do because um, it's it's funny, like in cannabis, the way all of that, that hype sort of happened, we saw this big rush and um, at least in Canada, all these companies committing to um, research and all these things and medical interest. And then as soon as recreational dollars started coming in, that sort of just, uh, mm -hmm. all and mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. um, I'm really curious to see what's going to happen in the next couple of months and really the next few years with psychedelics as you know laws change I mean laws really haven't caught up with uh, the industry so to speak um, and yeah like uh, there's, there's just a lot of promises and a lot of noise so I, I'd really like to see like Who's going to, who's going to last, you know, now we're seeing cannabis, a lot of these big companies that said, we're going to be on top and we're going to be number one. They're sort of falling by the wayside, you know, laying off hundreds of people, X million dollars in debt. <laughs> um, and so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just curious to see who, who's going to last really. <laughs> 
Yeah. And let's expand on that. Cause obviously there's, uh, I feel like health Canada has been much more progressive on this compared to the FDA. Like you're already seeing like compassionate cases with, um, I think it's like over 50 patients now have been able to, to get access to psychedelics and stuff. And so I'm interested as somebody that's covering both Canadian and U.S. operators in this space, are you seeing any significant differences in how they're approaching their business models or um, just anything, you know, unique about how U.S. companies are operating versus Canadian ones? Totally. I think um, in Canada, a lot of the challenges are around um, licensing and maybe not challenges. Challenges is the wrong word, but confusion sort of around um, licensing. So there are different structures around that. You've got the section 56 exemption, which is, uh, you mentioned, you know, there's 50 odd people that have been able to um, use psilocybin for various purposes. I think end of life anxiety is one of them. There's even, uh, I think a woman in British Columbia who's been able to use it for depression. So they're moving away from the life-threatening um, sort of area, which is, is really cool to see. Um, on the corporate side of it, um, you know, you can apply as a company for a Section 56 exemption that allows you to do research, but to, you know, uh, grow and possess psilocybin, you need a different different license. And so really like separating these companies out from um, who's actually, you know, doing, doing stuff and who's, you know, putting up press releases about future studies and things like that. Well, this is the sort of how I try and separate things. And I don't mean to sound like... Um, you know what I'm trying to say, right? Like, uh, yeah, these are the conversations we do have with our clients. And good yeah. people. it's just, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. what's happening? Like, I right. want to see like who's making moves. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think in reality, because of all the legal um, blockades and, you know, I mean, regulations are changing in some places, but they haven't really, you know, a lot of it is decriminalization. So mm -hmm. that's holding back a lot of this, like, um, movement. And yeah, it's, it's interesting to see, who, you know, who's really working with regulators to move this forward. Who's just like making, you know, a fuss about something, <laughs> but not, you know, not actually taking the steps <laughs> to move it forward. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the hype train <laughs> is definitely a real thing in totally. psychedelics right now. Um, but I, I'm curious and terms of how do you foresee Canada continuing to move this forward? Because when I've talked to some of the U.S. operators, it seems very clear that they're they're not interested in participating in a recreational yeah. market. They don't want to see an adult use market. But I think I've seen, uh, especially on the West Coast of Canada, that there's already shrooms dispensaries operating, right? There's already places where people can go and buy psychedelic mushrooms. So is, is there going to be a potential for a real adult use market in Canada for this? That's a great question. I think a lot of what we're seeing in Vancouver, it reminds me of the like, like Vancouver was also the first for like cannabis dispensaries before everything was, or not the first, but you know, the biggest, I guess, had the most um, illicit dispensaries all over the place. And yeah, you're right that we are, I, I've heard of one of them called Zoomers in downtown <laughs> Vancouver. Haven't been yet. Um, we are seeing that. Is there going to be a recreational market? I think not for a while. I mean, as far as I can tell, Health Canada's focus is the, the medicinal focus. And um, they're even moving beyond um, this exemption where it looks like they're going to be moving on this exemption progress or um, program with something called the special access program, um, where a couple of years ago, um, the prime minister kind of excluded these scheduled drugs from 
uh, a program that would enable a doctor to give their patient a restricted substance. So Health Canada is now talking about adding those substances, which include psilocybin, MDMA, and so on, back in. And what that would do is it would basically, um, it, wouldn't, it would, would not require an individual to write the health minister. <laughs> uh, they would just, you know, work with a physician. So, Yeah. Is that like off label in the US? I don't even know if that like is that like that's I think what we call it. I don't know, Nick, am I getting that wrong? Like prescribing something that's <laughs> off label. I don't know. Maybe I'm screwing that up. But I know Nick had a question too that I jumped on. <laughs> well well, I think it kind of plays into that. It's that, you know, our two healthcare systems are so different where you guys have a, a you know it's not going to break the bank for somebody to go to the doctor or try and get uh, more specialty type care. Um, one of the conversations that's been what I've been following is, you know, when is it going to be affordable to actually get these psychedelic medicines for people that, you know, can't break the bank to do this? And so I'm wondering, like, with that special access thing that they would apply for in Canada, is would that be covered by by Canada's healthcare policy, or would people still have to pay out of pocket? I think that's something that would be um, out of pocket at this point. However, I know that some of the providers of psilocybin um, are doing that on like a low cost or even a um, pro bono or whatever the term is sort of basis. Uh, so there definitely is, um, depending on the nonprofit or the, the, the company or the organization, there is um, an awareness of how do we make this accessible and affordable. Um, I know that um, Field Trip is a company that I've, I've spoken with their CEO, Ronan Levy, before. They've got clinics in, in the States and in Canada. Um, and so talking about some of the differences between the two countries, but also, you know, uh, the affordability thing I spoke with him about. And so here, I think he, he mentioned that it's about 300 Canadian dollars per session. And if you price that out based on like uh, psychotherapy, you know, it's, it's obviously a little more, but like he was talking about, you know, how, how is this something that we, we bring down the price? And so that's one company. I know there are others that are focusing on, you know, making things more accessible, but that for me primarily is the concern. I mean, all this buzz and all these studies, it's all very exciting, but how do you get it to the people and what are you doing to get it to people? And if, if all you're doing is, you know, pumping out a press release every couple of days about, Word shuffles and you know app positions. I mean, these are all very exciting things. But um, my primary concern is, you know, how are the people going to get this, and what are you doing to make that happen? And I guess just speaking on the the differences between the the U.S. and Canada, of which there are many, um, you know, the way that that the U.S. Um, tends to, to do things like this. Certainly it's, it's been the model of the cannabis industry is to do it state by state. Um, and so today, which we're recording on the, the 18th, February 18th, um, California just announced that state Senator uh, Scott Weiner introduced a bill, uh, SB 519, which decriminalizes the possession and personal use of most psychedelics. Um, which is a, a, you know, it's kind of following along the lines of what, you know, additional states like Oregon and New Jersey and um, DC have been have been doing. So, you know, there's this movement towards um, towards decriminalization, and and I feel like we need to get there before we can even have a conversation about who can prescribe this, who can, you know, so that that you're not walking down the street with something your doctor has given you and you could be arrested for it. 
Um, so is there, I guess, what's your take on that? I know that I just flung that at you and it just happened today, but you know, the whole decrim movement, how does that fit into, to, to what you're thinking about the way, you know, and how you cover it? Totally. I think, um, what the decrim movement does is it helps, um, on a couple of fronts, it helps build awareness. Um, you know, it, it helps on that access front, obviously. Um, but I think the awareness piece and the, the, the education, um, you know, when you say, or there, there's a big announcement like, oh, we've decriminalized, you know, X, Y, and Z, or de- depending on, you know, the location or the state, um, people ask questions. They're, you know, they want to know, like, what is that? What does that do? What is that going to do to me if I take it? How much can I possess? You know, and this sort of um, creates that need to answer those questions. And I think, I think the, the more, um, the more we're talking about it, the more, legislators notice and I think um it's it's definitely a necessary first step um as far as you know making these things more available um yeah I'm hoping to see that happen here too I know um the city of Vancouver is talking about decriminalizing all drugs um there's been chatter you know in the federal government too so I don't know (laughs) Um, you know, and I think it's so interesting because, um, you know, as we kind of, cause I, I think you're right. I think that there, it's almost bringing a normalization around it, um, that I think doesn't really, um, exist right now. I think, you know, I think it's almost like where cannabis was 10 years ago. Um, you know, because even, even when I have conversations with my family, they're like, Oh, you went from cannabis to psychedelics. Like where's the day glow. And I'm like, Oh my God, that is just such an ancient, like misnomer or like, it's just not what this is right now. And, and when I say that, you know, we're working really with biotech companies at this point who are doing really fascinating research, who are working with veterans, who are working with, you know, people who have treatment resistant depression or eating disorders, or I mean, fill in the blank, like then they're like, Oh, I get it. So I I don't know. I think that there's no question here. It's just like, this is part of what, you know, how a movement you know, moves itself forward. So, um, you know, as we kind of settle in under a Biden administration, I kind of wonder (laughs) how, how, I don't think he's ready to talk about psychedelics yet. Um, He's barely comfortable talking about cannabis. Um, So I think that, you know, we're, we're much slower in that regard, I feel like, than, than our Canadian brothers and sisters. I don't know, but that's just my kind of defeatist, I've been living in a Trump world for four years (laughs) attitude. (laughs) I mean, I think, it's hard to compare really because in the States, a lot of things happen, you know, like like you mentioned either state by state or, you know, with the decrim movement, we're seeing like city by city or like county. I don't know. I don't know the whole American. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, we don't either. So yeah, because yeah, they're all different. <laughs> yeah. Every state has their own rules. I mean, parishes, I don't even know what that is in Louisiana. <laughs> I think that the county, I don't know. Yeah. Totally. So it's interesting because, on the one hand, like you see those smaller communities more advanced. Um, and then federally, I guess it is a little bit slower, but yeah, I mean, sometimes I have the feeling here in Canada, like while it is very, very cool to see all of this stuff happening with psychedelics, I sort of wonder like, wait a minute, like we just legalized this thing here and like, it's, it's not in shambles, but it needs work. <laughs> yeah. We're not done. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, I, I really would like to like, I mean, the, the research um, piece is something that like, you know, in the beginning of this cannabis legalization hype, everyone was like, we're going to study it and we're going to, and that's all sort of, for a number of different reasons, I actually just wrote about that, but um, it's sort of fallen away. And so, 
I mean, I would like to see that brought back. Like there's still so much potential for cannabis, especially in, in Canada and in Vancouver specifically, we have, you know, an issue with, um, you know, a, like a drug crisis. You've got it in, in the States as well with opioid use disorder. And so cannabis is something that we've talked about uh, for many years is something that could potentially, you know, help interrupt that. Um, but I don't know, the government just kind of has, it feels like they've just walked away. So, <laughs> and that's probably not accurate, but yeah, the perception is yeah, ooh, psychedelics, <laughs> shiny yeah, new object, yeah. And I want to build on that. You know, you talked about the the cannabis research and, and, and you know wanting to see that come more into the fold of the industry. You know, at, at the end of last year, you saw a lot of, I, or at least I saw a lot of publications saying 2020 was the year of the magic mushroom, which. Um, I think Ann and I would both agree. It's like, actually, I'm pretty sure 2021 is going to see a lot more momentum um, around that industry. But, you know, as a reporter, somebody that's covering the industry, both psychedelics and cannabis, what are the storylines that you're watching for 2021? What are the things that that you're going to be interested in following and potentially reporting? Totally. Um, I mean, I mentioned one of them. One of them is, you know, who's providing access? Like, who's who's really a mover <laughs> that word is thrown around so often but who's really like moving things um what else am i going to be watching there's also a lot of um chatter about uh intention i guess within within companies like who 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 wants to just make dollars who's doing things for recreational purposes who's you know funding studies and you know working with um reputable institutions and things like that so basically just watching like the integrity of different players in the space is always something i've been interested in uh, try try and pay attention to without you know getting my own personal stuff in there um yeah there there's a great website that i um i love to read their stuff they're called symposia and they sort of look into um i guess issues within the space and so things things like that ethical sort of things because i mean psychedelics for me you know in in my personal experience and in my humble opinion uh, it's really a tool that you can improve to or pardon me a tool you can use to to Im improve your understanding of yourself and of the world and of your place in the world and so uh there there's a lot at stake here um I think really the intention of the company that's working in the space needs to be like clean and good and for the highest, for everyone's highest good. It sounds so hippie, but it's true. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So that's really my main, like my main focus, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I also want to talk about um, the relaunch of um, something that you've been working on to um, cannabishealth.com, where uh, we understand you have taken over as the editor. Um, so how do you, how, what, what job title is this for you? The 17th job title for you? And <laughs> how do you, what do you do? What are you going to do there? What are you looking, what's your vision for that? And then I want to talk about your day. Like, how are you parsing out all of this work? <laughs> if that won't stress you out. <laughs> no, 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 it's cool. It will help me structure my day. <laughs> um, so Cannabis Health, uh, this was a magazine um, so it's actually a physical magazine. I have like old copies from like 2003 over on my coffee 2003? 2003. So it was started in 2002. Did not know that. Okay. Um, here in Canada. And we've, you know, if you open up the old issues, there's um, 
columns with Dr. Ethan Russo, who I'm sure you're aware of, and like really um, uh, a lawyer named John Conroy, who in Canadian cannabis is a big deal, um, things like that. Like, so really um, kind of hard hitting um, pieces of writing that had to do with, you know, science and health and things like that. But then also like fun stuff, like recipes for medicated brownies and <laughs> and things like that. Um, and so the founder of that magazine approached me and, you know, it had basically been um, launched and went quiet and launched and went quiet a couple of times. And, you know, he thought, why not now? Um, let's, you know, kick it up a notch. And so um, it's not going to be a publication where like every day there's new things coming out all the time. Um, I've got a couple of contributors that I'll be working with who, um, we're yeah really just interested in like looking into some of those unanswered questions in cannabis and um, that the most recent thing that I wrote about for them for the launch was sort of about this piece on on research in um, in Canada on cannabis because there was sort of this perception at the beginning of legalization that oh we're going to see all this new cannabis research and it didn't really happen no and I feel like that like the U S and Canada and I think about this in a competitive way. I, that's just my nature, but we're losing to like, like the Netherlands and the, and, and Israel and all of these other countries who are like really looking at, at the molecule and, um, at some of these conditions that it can help. And we haven't even scratched the surface, um, of, of the whole plant, you know? So I, I think that there, it was interesting a couple of years ago to your point of like, oh, okay, this is going to be great. Let's see what health benefits come out of this. And then, you know, you took this journey through all the health issues in your book and, uh, you know, it did kind of stall. So are there, are you seeing a lot of news flow on research being done in Canada? No. Uh, you know, no. So you're not, okay. Well, yeah, not a trend. <laughs> so so I'll, I should maybe get into the background of that. So in 2018, I wrote this story for the New York Times that was all about like, oh, yay, legalization. So much research is going to happen, finally. Because that was the, the common thing that you'd you know, hear from doctors and scientists. Well, oh, we don't have enough research to back that up. Um, and so the hope is, okay, yes. So like, get now some fucking research. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, there were a lot of commitments and a lot of... Um, dollars put forward and 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 uh things said about all these different pursuits that were going to happen and then um you know for a number of different reasons i mean i mentioned um recreational cannabis you know in canada we, we had a, a medical cannabis program that started in 2001 and so for many 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 years that was sort of the, the precedent and the focus and um that sort of just it feels like that's sort of gone away because the recreational market came in and all of a sudden all of these dollars coming in from this giant market that you didn't have before. And so uh, the motivation for companies to look into that research really isn't there anymore. Um, that combined with, you know, regulatory things, um, Health Canada has in September, they brought in this requirement that anyone who wants to conduct a clinical trial in Canada has to use pharmaceutical grade substances, but there's no such thing as pharmaceutical grade cannabis in Canada and so it creates this sort of like uh okay you know like the, so a lot of people have had to walk away from those um those clinical trials because they can't really do them well and it's unfortunate because then it leads people um to self-medicate I mean I think the I think the reason why um I mean certainly and I was summing through your book last night the the, the reason why I use it is to sleep 
Um, you know, but do I know that I'm getting the right dose or what is most effective or, you know, like what's the effect of CBN versus CBD versus THC? Like, like everyone's kind of just throwing it, throwing their hands in the air and being like, I'm just going to try a bunch of things that, that uh, to see what works. And I can't think of another drug where, where, where we do that, you know, like, I mean, and maybe psychedelics will, is that drug too? Like, you know, I'm going to, you know, microdose some LSD and see how productive I am, but like, still no doctors watching me do that. Um, and I think that like, it, it adds a le- like a layer of illegitimacy to it where, where there is a seriousness and a gravitas to this that just, we're ignoring. And, um, and I, I don't know, I, I find that I'm, I'm as frustrated as you when it comes to that side of yeah. the industry. I mean, the plant itself is a huge challenge. Like there's nothing, there's no pharmaceutical drug like it, that you know, has all these different components and, you know, they, they can change not only from, you know, strain to strain, but like batch to batch of the same strain. <laughs> and yeah. so I, I can imagine that, you know, if, if I was a doctor, I'd be like, Oh, well, I don't know if I want to you know, right. see why that, that is there and you think that maybe that would compel people to, to want to look into it more but here we are yeah here we are <laughs> um so amanda you have been so generous with your time we have uh one more question for you before we'll let you go um and obviously you've already been able to pitch the new york times on on your research story but you know if you're looking at wanting to pitch them again or the wall street journal or um, Globe and Mail, something like that uh, around psychedelics or cannabis. What is the story that you would either want to write yourself or want to see on the A1 of those newspapers? Damn, <laughs> that's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it would probably it would probably be on this issue of ethics and integrity and and um, you know, like, because when we, we look back to, to the research and the, the people that were spearheading a lot of that work in the 60s and 70s, they were all about um, this, they were sort of, you know, um, embracing this, like, hippie love, like, we just want to be better people kind of vibe. <laughs> and I, I recognize why there's, like, a stepping away from, from that a little bit. But uh, I think we need to like return to that a little bit more. Uh, well, because their intentions were pure. it was very much more about pure. access at the time, right? It was uh, right. very easy for companies that wanted to do research to get their hands on it. And you know, I, I've heard of companies playing nice in the sandbox right now, but I don't think it's nearly as as open as it was. Totally, and this this idea of like information sharing. I mean, a, a lot of these um, original psychedelics researchers they're all like open source i want to share this with you and then to see players coming in that don't really know a lot they don't have an existing you know like any reputation in the space you know they're they're eager to to glean information but then they want to patent things Mm -hmm. and and in this like patenting of this the therapy process i'm like what like that's (laughs) you can't do (laughs) that yeah yeah (laughs) Patent the eye shades. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Um, Well, thank you so much. You have been, like Nick said, generous with your time. And we want to have you back when your next book is out um, because we would love to, to, you know, just make sure our audience knows about that too. Um, You know, and keep on doing good work. We are are big fans. Oh, cheers. Thank you. It's been a pleasure chatting with you guys. And uh, yeah, I, uh, I look forward to uh, finishing up this book and talking to you guys again in the future. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Amanda.
Thanks again to Amanda Siebert, Forbes contributor and cannabis and psychedelics journalist for joining us today. Make sure to check out her work on Forbes, CannabisHealth.com, and also her book, The Little Book of Cannabis. Um, you can find that on her website, www.AmandaSiebert.com, as well as follow her on Twitter at Amanda underscore Siebert. Siebert is spelled S-I-E-B-E-R-T. Um, and then make sure to keep an eye out for the little book of psychedelics, hopefully coming out uh, closer to the end of this year. And as always, thanks for listening to The Green Rush. If you want to chat with Ann or I, you can find us on Twitter at the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. Drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. Um, and make sure you're signed up for our newsletter, which goes out every Thursday. And subscribe to us in your favorite podcatcher. That's one take, Shay. One take. Woohoo!